Hola amigos, amigas, players, playerettes, dude, dudettes, and everybody in between, up, down, left, and right. Welcome back. This is going to be episode, can you believe it's going to be episode 72 of Game of Crimes? And I, I have it Morgan down as Ryan. episode 71. What's that? I have it down as episode 71. Well, let's just go to the list. <laughs> no, Derek Maltz was episode 71. No, he was episode 70 on my list. Uh, episode 70 was Kevin Holland. No, All you have to do is you have to go look at what I put out. <laughs> go look at what it says on iTunes. <laughs> uh, okay, go ahead. You missed one. Now you've run the whole intro. No, uh, that right. makes it funny. <laughs> well, as you can see, Murph's always off by a little bit. Um, <laughs> I even use my fingers and my toes to count. I still don't know where I just missed something. I have the master list, Murph. Go go on to Google Drive. I put the master list there. All right. Anyway, we digress. That's your first digression. We haven't even gotten into the podcast yet. So. <laughs> it's going to be a good one. <laughs> going to be a good one. All right. Well, according to the script, it says housekeeping. So uh, quick housekeeping. Go to Apple. Go to Spotify. They've got that thing. One, two, three, four, five. Five stars. Hit those. really helps us out a lot. Head on over to our website. Game of Crimes Podcast.com. Uh, we got some good stuff over there. Anytime somebody has a book out there, we put stuff, we put pictures there, our merch is there. Follow us on that thing called the social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. But Murph, I'm going to ask you this. You probably don't see this coming, right? Where do you got to be? I mean, it's Friday. We're recording. It's fr where do you got to be on every day of the week that ends in Y? Well, this weekend you have to, on Saturday, you have to be in front of your TV watching college football, go Mountaineers, they beat Bear last night. Yay. So, um, but on the podcast, you need to come and check us out on Patreon. We've got a lot of extra episodes, a lot of bonus material over there that you're not going to hear on the regular podcast show. It's everything from our Q&A to our movie ratings to you can't make this shit up to 911, what's your emergency, or as like I like to say, 119. Uh, there's a ton of stuff on there. We have more on there than we have on our regular podcast, whether it's 71 or 72 episodes. So come just come and check us out and see what you think. Yeah, that's why Murph never stopped counting. I got nine fingers. Jeez, look at that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but seriously, we, we got some good stuff over there. And for this special episode, we're going to be recording today, if you can't make this shit up. My oldest sister has officially retired, and so... We brought her out here. She is going to be sitting in the studio with me and Murph as we record this. So we will actually have our first, in a sense, live audience. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to find out some stuff about Mr. Morgan that no, y'all don't not. know. So come on over and check it out. <laughs> I can edit everything out. All right. So, hey, guys. And if you're just feeling like a quick pause for the cause, paypal.com. Just use our email, Podcast at gmail.com. Now, let's get this thing started. Let's go. All right. This is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We state this according to law, federal law, United States Code, Title 22.4 slash 5. We have to take the story seriously, but... If you haven't figured it out already, we never take ourselves serious. And, and guess and one of the ways we don't take our serious is what, Murph? Guess, guess what time it is? Guess what time it is? I'll ask you one more time. Guess what time it is? It's time for Small Town Police Blotter. And I've got one blotter thing, but I've got a couple headlines that are just, they speak for themselves. But let's kick this off first, right? Murph, at 8.34 a.m., deputies were, were called to a report of fraud fraud can you believe it in the 14,000 block of root county road seven near yampa wherever the hell that is a man reported purchasing a donkey from a person on craigslist and the man was upset because he thought the craigslist description was not an accurate representation of the donkey deputies referred him to civil court 
Let's see, does he have big ears? He got four legs, a tail, and he goes, <laughs> What? <laughs> what did he try to do? Pass off a really big cat as a donkey? I don't know. I thought maybe you were going to talk about that lady that went to McDonald's, couldn't get her chicken nuggets. <laughs> Which, by the way, if you were on Patreon, that would be one of our. We did a hilarious version this time of stupid 911 calls, yeah. and that was. <laughs> by the way, we're going to have to report out on the results of that. We actually have our poll. Done. So we we actually decided uh, which one was the funniest and which one was the stupidest. Ah, very good. Yeah. So we'll have to report back on that. All right, Murph. A couple quick ones too. Headlines. You know, sometimes these folks in small towns, they just they need to reread their headlines. All right. <laughs> the section is police firing courts. Murph. Man shot twice in one week says someone is out to kill him. <laughs> Well, according to that headline, he's right. <laughs> oh. Unbelievable. Yeah, man shot for the second time in a week, told police someone is trying to kill him, but he doesn't know why. They found the 26-year-old victim the second time uh, lying on the porch, suffering from two bullet wounds, one to his right foot, the other his left leg. He was riding a bicycle through the alley when he was shot. Good, dude. <laughs> Was it the same alley both times he got stopped going no. in that damn alley? Uh, quit going in the alley or quit pissing people off. I don't know. Man shot Ooh. twice in one week says someone out to kill him. There is your obvious headline of the... He's a rocket scientist. This one we should have called ATF in on this next headline, Murph. Okay. Bill Sarukas, here you go, brother. Uh, no, no, no. Different one. Maybe a Dominic Polifron or a Lou Velozzi. Oh, you know. gotcha. Um, federal agents raid gun shop. Find weapons. Whoa. <laughs> who would have ever thunk it? Who would have, th- who would have known? Is that where you go look for guns? Uh, I had no idea until today. If you wanted to find guns, you had to go raid a gun shop. we got to call Lou Velozzi. we got to check this out. Might not be aware. <laughs> Hell, it's probably one of his undercover ops. Uh, <laughs> and if you wonder what we're talking about, go check out his interview on episode, episode four. four. Wow. I didn't realize it's been that long since we had Lou on here. And then we had the Chrisser on, and we've had uh, Dominic Polifron on, and uh, who uh, else from ATF? Oh, uh, Jay Dobbins. Jay Dobbins, yeah. Jay Bird, yeah. Chris Bayless. We've yeah, had some the people from ATF on here. Yeah, great stories. But Steve, just in case you were wondering, if you want to find guns, where are you going to raid? A gun store. A gun shop. Da, 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 da. Hey, and kind of a little deviation from our small town police blotter for today, but I thought, hey, we just might read the most obvious headlines. <laughs> Unbelievable. Like, uh, there's a couple out there like death is a leading natural, you know, cause of death, you know, or, you know, or people dying. You know, it just like teen pregnancy, uh, you know, d- d- uh, winds down after age 25. No kidding. One <laughs> <laughs> of the other ones I saw. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, thus endeth the reading for today, um, which is good because the next part, we kind of had fun with our next guy, Nathan Hutchinson. Oh, yeah. But this is a story. This is a story like a, a, we now have the honor of having two people who have received the highest awards that you can get from Congress and from the president for uh, bravery and for um, actions, you know, and um, going above and beyond the call of duty. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, Nathan, um, how do we come across Nathan? I think this was somebody you had an intro yeah, to. Yeah, uh, somebody introduced this to him. Um, oh, a good friend of mine in uh, Oklahoma. Yeah. So it's, uh, we had I've really spoken at a conference out there, and, and he's aware of our podcast and listened. So thank you, brother. 
And we get a lot of good interviews that way too. And so Nathan, here's the interesting thing about this. Um, when you talk to the guy now, he's like, he's fun. He's unassuming, but man, when you listen to this story and we don't want to take, we don't want to go too much into the story, but this is a guy, uh, lost one of his partners in the shootout. He was shot four times. He was shot twice, got people to safety, even though being shot twice, he went to get his partner. Yeah. You'd leave nobody behind. Unbelievable. You want to meet a stud? That's who we're yeah. going to interview today, man. This guy put his own life in jeopardy. Just like you said, man, he put his, his team members' lives ahead of his own, and he suffered for it. I mean, it ended up costing his career, and I won't tell you any more than that because we want you to hear the story from him. And by the way, that's what makes us different from most true crime podcasts is we don't tell you the story. We let the heroes tell you their story themselves. You know, that is, that's a good distinction right there. It's like, you know, there's people who read the book and people who wrote the book, you know, literally and figuratively. We bring on the people who wrote the book. They were their first person accounts. Uh, you won't get this anywhere else. But Murph, we will not hear Nathan Hutchinson's story and what he did unless I ask you the one question. Are you ready to play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all? The headline friendly, obvious statement game of crimes. Hey, for all our listeners, get in. Sit down, shut up, hold on, and listen. I mean, listen, put yourself in Nate's shoes and see if you think you could do that. Bring on Nate Hutchinson, our hero of the day. All right, people, welcome back. This is going to be yet another... This is a good... We, we like these survivor stories. We like oh, talking yeah. to people who have done their duty, done their job, to have things happen to them that do not happen to a lot of people. But when they do, we, we want survivors. We want to hear their stories. And this one's a great story too. So from the great state of Utah, which is changing in some areas as we talked about, but the great state of Utah from Ogden, we got with us, Nate Hutchison. Nate, welcome to this thing we call Game of Crimes. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Now you say that now, you may change your mind. Hang on, pal. (laughs) Just wait. He's going to tick you off for the latest days over, I promise (laughs) Most likely, yeah. (laughs) And here's the cool thing about, you know, the people we bring on that that have these survival stories, they're survival stories, and then there are people that go above and beyond. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And I can't wait to get this story. I've read about it. We did a preliminary interview on the phone, Nate and I did. We we didn't get any details, but... From what I've read, mm, you got one hell of a story, brother. Yeah, it was a crazy day for sure. But we're not going to get there yet, are we, Morgan? No, we're not because we got to talk about this thing of ours called Cosa Nostra, this <laughs> thing of ours. So we got to tell you, we got to ask you, Nate, how did you get involved in this? So was it family, friends? You'd lose a bet, I mean, decide to apply for law enforcement. So, <laughs> you know, kind of where did you start off at? You know, how did you get into this? You know, I was one of those guys that uh, wanted to be in law enforcement ever since I can remember. I mean, as, as long as I can remember, that was, that was it. That was the only thing I was going to do. No one was going to change my mind. Um, I even go back. It's funny. My mom still has it. You know, they make these little poster boards when you're in kindergarten, and you're supposed to kind of like introduce yourself and what's your favorite food and, you know, all that type of stuff. And what do you want to be when you grow up? And and my mom still has it. She shows it to me. But, it's you know, it's said I want to be a police officer. Uh, so that was it. I mean, my my path was set. There was no other option for me. I don't have any family in it. In fact, they were quite a bit opposed to it, but but that was me. I was just going to do it. Why were they opposed to it? You know, my dad, 
I grew up, you know, grew up in Utah. Um, my dad, not that, I mean, he's stand-up guy, never really been in trouble, but when he was in high school, he, he was, uh, he was probably one of those guys that ran from the cops. I mean, he always tells me stories about being in the, in the sixties and, and, uh, and, and he's like, yeah, you know, they used to chase me and I would, and I would run and, and we would be in chases and, you know, he, he was kind of a motorcycle guy in the sixties, big into, to motorcycles. And, uh, so he just, you know, he just kind of, he would always be like, I don't know why you want to do that, that lights and woo woo. That's, that's what he always say. Lights <laughs> and, woo -woo. and, uh, and so, you know, he was always like, you need to get a good government job, you know, a good, you know, cause they work on, uh, up on base. They worked at the, there's a local air force base here and, you know, they, they had very successful careers doing that. And he's like, that's what you need to do. You, you know, you need to get into that, make some money, blah, blah, blah. Don't, don't become a cop. <laughs> and you listened. Yeah, I listen real well. You can, you can, <laughs> as, as kids always do to their parents. I listen, I took their advice. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. so that kind of stuck with you. So, what'd you do after high school then? You know, so when I graduated high school, again, the entire focus was I just wanted to get into law enforcement. So, so the funny thing is, is I started, you know, different little odds and ends security jobs, and I got a job working for Sears in their loss prevention department. And, you know, believe it or not, that was actually a hell of a fun job. I mean, we just wore regular clothes and would walk around the store, you know, and, and catch shoplifters and completely different time than it is now because, I mean, it was totally encouraged. Like, they're like, you know, do whatever you got to do. Get those guys. Don't let them get away with anything. <laughs> get their so, butts. Yeah, exactly. So now, did you ever have to get into an altercation with a shoplifter? Yeah, you know, that, honestly, that was like a, a weekly event, like... And that, that kind of kind of set the stage. I mean, for for me, it taught me a lot of lessons because you know these shoplifters would come in. They had no respect. We weren't we weren't police. We weren't anything like that. So so they could care less who they were. So they would either try to run or fight. And and uh, and I became kind of well known with the with the Ogden Police Department because they were always responding and and. Uh, and, now and, wait a minute. You were well known because they go, "There's that pain in the ass, Nate again." Just you know, <laughs> add we, more paperwork for me to do. You know, the funny thing is, is so I actually started my career in Ogden. We'll get to that, but uh, but the guy they had a system back then, and and they called it. I I don't know what it was officially called, but the the line guys called it the Golden Boy, and they would go off of your stats and and the higher producers had a better uh they, they could pick their shifts and their schedules and things like that for the following year and so uh some of the guys would come in and they'd be like you know you made me golden boy again this year because you're you're catching so many people i'm getting so many arrests <laughs> your stat machine yeah <laughs> yeah exactly when i became a city police officer this was back in 1975 in a little southern town of bluefield west virginia there was a guy that I went to college with, uh, Dave Williams, we took our first police test together, but before he got hired, he was working at a little small, uh, almost like a neighborhood grocery store in downtown Bluefield. And boy, I tell you what, he was just like you, he was dead on those shoplifters and he would chase them down. He was fast. He was, he was a, a smaller guy, but very wiry, uh, talk a million miles an hour. And he was the same way, you know, that, I mean, everybody in the police department knew Dave because he's always chasing somebody down. I don't think anybody ever got away. Yeah, that, that was, that was kind of me. I, I loved it. I mean, I'm 18, 19 years old and, and to me, this was like, you know, I don't know, they were paying me 
like seven bucks an hour. But I was like, this is the job. Like until I'm 21 and can actually be a cop. Like, I don't think there's anything better. Oh, he was, he was a heck of a, when he, so we took our first police together test together. I went to the city, he went to the County. Then uh, he did a few years there. And then he moved down to Charleston, South Carolina police department, uh, made a name for himself down there in the violent crimes section. I think uh, ended up in several shootings, had to, had to pop a couple guys and then he went to DEA, and that's kind of where I got my motivation to go to DEA. Another guy introduced me to DEA, Pete Ramey. And then when I found out that's what Dave was doing, that was my go-to. Man, you know, tell me about it, tell me about it. And to this day, we're still friends. So it's Oh, uh, that's awesome. But it's funny. That's how it starts with that grocery store chasing down them shoplifters. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's really funny back <laughs> then. So, and it make you know what it makes for good war stories down the road too. It does, yeah. I have some crazy stories, you know, from back in those days. <laughs> back, back in the day, see, it's like again, Costa Nostra. Back, back in the day, back. Yeah. So, so, how long did you do this uh, loss prevention thing with Sears? Until uh, I turned twenty-one, and and I was eligible to go to the police academy. So, from about eighteen to twenty-one, so three years. Okay. Um, and during that time, how many shoplifters do you think that you nabbed that you apprehended? shoot now we're going back i mean uh it, you're not that old dude come on yeah just 45 it feel i feel older but i guess that's what getting shot does to you but i don't we, we would average about 300 a year oh. so yeah just oh about my one God, a day that's, like, well, that's what i was gonna say one a day holy yeah. cow yeah yeah and so you know probably all together eight nine hundred so that's the ones you caught for everyone you caught how many do you think got away Oh, I, I bet. I mean, I bet it's like 10 to 1 that we're catching. Now, did you deal with any of the organized retail theft gangs, the ones that, are, that you know, they've, they've got a whole operation to do this? Yeah, we did. We, uh, we, there's kind of two categories. We would deal with kind of the local organized ones, and they were a lot more um, street gangs and stuff, and, and they were organized. They'd come in, and, you know, typically they'd pull right up to the curb, They'd run in, four or five of them, grab as much stuff as they could in just a short amount of time and jump back in the car. But then we would also deal with, uh, like, traveling ones that would go around the country and just kind of professional shoplifters, and and we would deal with those as well. Where's the wackiest place you ever found merchandise? Uh, You know, I mean, obviously everyone shoves it down their pants, you know shoves it down their shirt and you know women women come out of a dressing room and and they look like you know they just gained 40 pounds and you're like well where'd all the clothes go <laughs> and you definitely don't say to a woman does this make does this dress make me look fat i am not answering that one <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> now that dress doesn't make you look fat but the 10 others you have underneath that definitely do yeah, yeah exactly you exactly got to learn to dodge these uh got to see these things coming so now uh where did you apply at did you apply multiple places or just one so in utah back then it's changed a little bit now but but back then you kind of had to self-sponsor yourself through the police academy um there was so many applicants for the for the few positions that were available they they were only hiring people that were that were already sponsored so utah has different uh police academies located throughout the state and it generally cost about five thousand dollars and you had to pay that up front yourself go to the go to school and then from school once you graduated then you'd start applying and and get picked up so so nate what's the whole purpose behind that why do you make somebody go pay for an academy then go look for a job is that just to weed you know people who aren't serious about it out but that's five grand 
is still a lot of money to come up with when you're trying to find a job. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think I think it was just the demand. I mean, you you had so many people applying for the few positions that there was. Like the first time I tested, I tested at the Ogden Police Department. They had uh, five openings for the year, and they had four hundred and fifty applicants show up for those five positions. So I think it was just a, a one of those where they could. They didn't have to pay people. They didn't have to pay the the academy, pay wages, and things like that. They could select people that were already certified and ready to go. So that's, it was, I think, a financial decision. What year was that? That would have been 99. Yeah, I can guarantee you that ain't the same way now. A lot of people are struggling to find people to hire, aren't they? Oh, Utah, yeah, Utah is the same. Um, you can't get anyone. I mean, they're offering all kinds of bonuses. We're we're, we're offering people $5,000 just to sign on, you know, stuff like that. They, they don't have to do that anymore. It's, certainly the pendulums change. Yeah, it's a, as they say, there's buyer's market, buyer market, buyer's market, and seller's market. Yeah, so uh, yeah. the market has definitely changed. So, um, so how, so were you successful your first time applying? Yeah, so I I went through the academy. Uh, the academy I, I had to work during the days because um, I'm paying for this myself. You know, when you're you're 21 years old, and, I mean back then five thousand dollars is a ton of money. You're so I'm working during the day and and going to school at night so i generally my schedule was i'd get up to go to work at about 4 30 in the morning i'd work till about four in the afternoon come home quick shower uh and then head off to the police academy and that go till about 11 at night and then all day on saturday took about nine months ten months to to graduate and then from there you start applying i kind of was excited i was ready to go so i started applying when i was in the academy still um, hoping to get through the testing process because, you know, it takes so long to to go through the whole testing process. I was hoping to be able to have a job when I graduated, which I did. So, and the, and the agency you applied with was? So I applied all over the state, um, honestly, and, uh, and I applied specifically for the Ogden City Police Department and, and then the Salt Lake County Sheriff's Office. And funny thing is, is I come home from work one day and I have a, a letter in the mail and it says, Hey, it's from the Salt Lake County Sheriff's office. Says, hey, we'd like to offer you a position. And as I'm reading that and kind of celebrating, cause again, it was very, very, very competitive to, to get in on anywhere. And I'm celebrating, I'm excited. And then the phone rings and it's the uh, assistant chief at Ogden. And he's like, Hey, we'd like to offer you a position at Ogden city. I'm like, wow, I got now I got my choice, you know, kind of, kind of <laughs> the buyer's market, like you say. Yeah. So decided to go to Ogden City. Ultimately, that's that's where I went. Why? Uh, Salt Lake County was going to make me move. They wanted me to move to Salt Lake County, and uh, and for what they were paying back then versus what uh, housing was, I'd never be able to afford it. Um, Ogden city was kind of my hometown. I knew some guys there. Like I say, I, I had made friends with guys from, from my days, uh, working shoplifters. So ultimately that's kind of the reason. And, and I ended up going to Ogden city. So, so tell us, give us a little bit of details now on the area. So, um, Ogden city, um, how, first of all, how big's the County and then how big's the city? So Weber County, everyone always calls it Weber, but but we call it's it Weber. Weber. Yeah, Weber County. Well, then why uh, don't you spell it Weber, like W E E B E R? Justin Bieber. Was it named after Justin Bieber? Weber. <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, it, it, originally the it's kind of a cool history, and I can get into that too. But uh, 
to answer your question, we're about 25 minutes north of Salt Lake City. Um, population is roughly 300,000 now. Back then, it was probably closer to about 225. Ogden City is the county seat. Ogden's a really cool history, Old West, uh, a lot of Old West history there. Um, so, yeah, about 25 minutes north of Salt Lake. And um, what so, but but you'd grown up in Utah your whole life. So, like, this was like, I mean, you were staying in the area. You were staying home. Yeah, I was. And, and like, Ogden, you know, was the city I grew up in. So it was kind of cool to, to get hired there. That's kind of where I wanted to work. Ultimately, I wanted to work for the sheriff's office. And that's where I ended up going after a couple of years. Um, but yeah, Ogden. So why'd you want to work for the sheriff's office? You could have taken the position originally and saved yourself the two years. Well, they didn't. So the, again, back then, it was so hard to get hired. The sheriff's office would only hire someone once every couple of years. Okay. And uh, and so that's where I wanted to go, but they weren't hiring at that time. So started with Ogden and eventually went to the sheriff's office. And that was kind of my my goal is was the sheriff's office. So you do your two years in Ogden. Um, what, what kind of a, describe Ogden for us in terms of what kind of crimes? You know, what kind of a city is it that you? What kind of things were you dealing with on a regular basis? Ogden's a blue collar town. It's cool. The history of Ogden is, uh, you know, so back in 1869, you had the the Transcontinental Railroad where they wanted to connect the the East Coast to the West Coast by by rail, and so they started the the two competing railroads were were competing to to make that happen you had the uh the northern pacific and then uh the central pacific coming from california well they met right outside of ogden back in may of 1969 and they call that area the golden spike because once the two railroads met then they drove in that golden spike and ogden became a hub uh if, if you were coming from the east or or leaving the West to go to the East, you had to go through Ogden. It was the junction city. The Ogden was the junction of the railroad. I think the next one was was in Nebraska. So Ogden really kind of became this blue collar town. You had a lot of uh, the the cowboys and ranchers and anyone that needed to use the rail yards to ship anything. And of course that brought crime with it as well. I mean, you know, people leaving east or, or, or running from the law, whatever, they're going to pass through Ogden. So that's kind of been the history of Ogden. You know, Utah was obviously settled by uh, the Mormons and, and Brigham Young and Salt Lake City and and so forth. But but Ogden's a little bit more blue collar, kind of a little has always maintained that flavor. Oh. Cool. And it's good that you know the history too. It's like, you know, it's a lot of people go to work in areas and say, Hey, I knew about this. I, go, I didn't, but you know, it's like, but it's good to know that it's yeah. good to know the town because that, that kind of becomes, that's kind of how you police the town too. What's been our history, what's been our culture. Yeah. So for that two years, um, did you just stay in patrol or did you move up out of patrol? No, I just stayed in patrol those two years. I kind of had a, a goal. I wanted to, to be in patrol for a while until I kind of you know, cut my teeth a little bit. And especially back then, um, I mean, you really had to earn any type of a specialty. So, so I did my two years at Ogden, uh, eventually a position opened at the sheriff's office and I applied and, and got that. Did you have to start in the jail? No, no, they, they had openings in the jail. Um, and a lot of the people I went to the academy with, uh, jumped on those, but I never had an interest, you know, in working in the jail. I always wanted to work the streets. That was kind of always my, my thing. Oh, cool. So, um, now was it, was it, 
were you able to get hired? Like you say, they didn't hire very often. Was it because you had the experience and also had been through the academy? Obviously, that that had to be a help. Yeah, they they the sheriff's office wouldn't hire anyone that hadn't been through the academy. They they wouldn't sponsor anyone through the academy. Um, so yeah, it helped. And and again, it was super competitive. I think for that position, they had one opening, and I believe they had like two hundred something applicants when I applied. So you really, you know, they were just weeding everyone out any way they could, and you just had to. To, to rise to the top any way you could. So uh, so when you got hired, did they have to did they send you through a mini academy, you know, to teach you their own ways, or did you just start go through an FTO program of training office? Yeah, so field I, training officer and hit the street. Yeah, I did the did the field training. So the same thing with Ogden. Did a did a field training in Ogden, with, then got out on my own. Came over to the sheriff's office. Did a field training. Originally was scheduled for the entire time, but after a couple of weeks, they were like, "All right, you know what you're doing. We're just." gonna cut you loose now turn you loose turn you loose upon the public so exactly the first thing you did was went, <laughs> first thing you went to steer was you went to sears and said hey toss me a couple of arrests i got to get my stats up exactly exactly no you know i when i was in i, I the sheriff's office was was a good fto uh it was kind of different because i i had a lot of experience so so they even the guys even treated me different they knew who i was but you know when i was brand new at ogden going through fto and 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 you're first put out on the streets. I mean, it that's a it's a crazy different uh, life than what you were leading before. And 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 I kind of knew I was going to have one of those crazy careers because my first call off FTO was a burglary in progress and uh, actual people in the home. You know, so I mean, that was my very first call right out of the out of briefing on my but first you said day. People in the home was it the people who belonged in the home or no, was it no. the actual burglar? <laughs> They were, there was a group of them. There was four burglars in the home. So uh, when I got there, I'm talking to the neighbor. He had called it in. He said, hey, the, I'm asked to watch my house. The neighbors are out of town, and I just watched these guys go through the window. And uh, and I'm like, are they still in there? And he's like, yeah, they're still in there. So uh, he had a key, gave me a key. Uh, you know, I'm young and don't know any better, so I'm not waiting for my backup. So I, I go in the house. I'm calling nay, out. Nay. I know, oh, I know. <laughs> Every FTO is sitting out here going, oh. Yeah. Yep. But yeah, found them hiding in the house, you know. They didn't try and run? No, they didn't try to run. They just scattered in the house. I remember the first one, I was walking through the house, and and, uh, and there's a bedroom door, and it's slightly open. And I go to push it, to open it. And, you know, I'm just reaching with my hand to, to push it. And it opens slightly and then bounces back. And I'm like, <laughs> I know someone's hiding behind that door. Now, were these kids or were they uh, adults? Uh, young adults, like 18 to 20. Who hopefully picked another career path after this encounter. Yeah, they weren't they, they weren't the best. They weren't the best burglars, <laughs> that's for sure. Well, you, you couldn't have had more than probably two sets of handcuffs on you. So what'd you do? I did. I got the two. And uh, and then by then, my, my backup guys had arrived. So, okay. You know, I was just young. I was eager. I was wanting to show that I that I could do this, that I could catch these guys. Now, did you did you get your ass reamed out by your supervisor? I did. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I knew that was coming. <laughs> did, did you have a radio on you? A portable? I did. Yeah, yep, we had portable radios, just a handheld, and you know, did I you, told them when when you captured the first one. Did you radio in that you've got someone in custody? Yeah, I did. And everyone then everyone was like, hold on, we're coming. Wait, yeah. wait, wait. Yeah. It's like, oh, I'm yeah. sorry. I'm already in here getting them. Oh, that, that escalates everything to the responder. 
Oh, it does, man. I can just see the, some sergeant vein popping out. Let me oh, yeah. You know, you don't do that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can totally, you know, later down the road when I was promoted to sergeant and different things, uh, I look back on some of the some of the shit that I did, and I'm just like, dang, you know, I, I would have hated me as a patrol officer. Morgan, we just did the uh, – we have a Patreon channel also, and, and we do a monthly thing called Q&A where our subscribers can ask us any question they want. One of the questions they asked today – uh, right before we did your interview, is uh, is there anything in your career that you would have done over? <laughs> this would have been a great one to have, wouldn't it? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> what is the proper answer for your promotion test? Wait for backup, secure the area, and, you know, and don't become a target. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and, and just for our listeners, just so you know, I mean, to us this is obvious, but you don't know if there's people in there armed or not. Yeah, Some exactly. of our listeners – some of our listeners may be thinking, well, hey, he's a police officer. That's what he gets paid to do. Well, yeah, you do, but you don't get paid to go in there and risk your life like that. Right. Yeah. Totally stupid. Totally, you know, again. I wouldn't say that. You, you put you put these, you know, you're essentially still a young guy and, and uh, put you're out invincible. on patrol and, and, you know. Sometimes it's a sink or swim. You just gotta you just gotta learn. You make mistakes and learn from them. You thought you were invincible. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Ten feet tall, I might have been there. <laughs> yeah. We all were there. Yeah. <laughs> so we've now determined that you have now given sergeants some heartaches and some headaches, and uh, now you're moving on to some other areas. So, uh, the tell us the difference in size between Ogden City and Salt Lake in terms of the population and the kind of like the area you were covering. Size wise, uh, Ogden Weber County is bigger than Salt Lake County. Um, I think it's about 652 square miles for the for Weber County. Um, Salt Lake's probably a little over half that size, but population-wise, they, they have quite a bit more. Uh, I, I don't know exactly their latest figures, but um, I, I think overall Salt Lake County is probably closer to a million um, people in that, that county. Right. So, Nate, uh, as with all guys, we everybody compares sizes. So uh, Weber County was twice the size of Salt Lake, but from a po- obviously difference in population. Now, one thing I want to ask you about is when you had a, when you were on the street in Ogden, how many people would you have out on the street at a time in Ogden versus how many how, ma- how many would you have out uh, when you were at Salt Lake? Uh, so Weber or I wasn't ever at Salt Lake. I never I never ended up. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Down there. Uh, but, but the way that they do the shifts in Ogden, um, they, they do 10 hour shifts and the city's separated into eight sections. So you have one officer assigned to, uh, one of those sections. So each shift would have eight on day shift typically ran from six to four. Um, they didn't have, uh, it was just them, but starting at about three, you started to get a swing shift on another swing shift came on at five and then you have a graveyard shift come on at nine. So depending on the time of day, you'd have anywhere from, from, and that's just patrol guys, not counting detectives or any of the other specialties, but you'd have anywhere from, from eight to 30, Man, so uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I said Salt Lake. I didn't mean to say that. You, you were in Weber County. Yeah, yeah. Named for Justin Bieber. We determined that. So exactly, yeah. exactly. And then Weber County for patrol, um, they work 12-hour shifts, and typically you'd have between 10 to 12 on each shift, and then they would just rotate. You'd have a day shift, and you had a graveyard shift. So uh, obviously, you got a lot of folks out there on the street like that. So. Let's start talking about how you now moved up. So what's what's the structure in the sheriff's office that says if you want to move up out of patrol, 
move up to the next slot. I mean, um, are you looking to stay in patrol and go into investigations? Or are you looking to get promoted and stay in patrol? Kind of what's your career, what's your glide path during those first few years? Uh, well, the first few years, I just, I was just looking to, to kind of learn the job, learn the gig. And so for the first couple of years, that's, that's all I was interested in was, was just work and patrol. Ultimately, my, my goal was always to get into investigations and specifically I wanted to get into narcotics. Uh, that was ever even, Why? I don't know. It's the same thing as, as wanting to be a cop. It's just, that's what I wanted to do as a little kid. That's what I wanted to do. I would tell everyone, you know, uh, that that's what I, I wanted to do some sort of undercover work and, and everyone would kind of just laugh and be like, whatever. And, but that's what I wanted to do. That, that was my goal. That was just always what I wanted to do. Did you ever have a, did, was there ever an incident that with narcotics or drugs or like you had a friend that OD'd or you saw something bad happen that affected you that made you think that way? Or was it just like you're saying when you were a little kid, nope, I, here's, here's what I, career day, I want to be a cop. Yeah, that's it. It was just career days. Never had an incident. You know, if I, if, if there was anything, um, it was probably eighties movies, you know, watching, watching all those 80 movies with the, with the plain clothes, uh, cops. I don't you know? tell me you watched Miami vice. <laughs> I did watch a little Miami vice. There you go. Now you're talking. <laughs> <laughs> How about Hill you know, street blues? I watched Hill street blues as well oh. as a kid. You know, they had a, there was another one called, uh, called hunter i don't know if you guys remember i remember hunter fred dryer Dryer. yeah Yeah. the ex-football player so you had a we had a competing thing in the neighborhood of all the the kids in the neighborhood which was better miami vice or or hunter and i was always a staunch miami vice guy yeah yeah me too (laughs) Uh, murph couldn't pull it off though he tried wearing the fancy clothes and driving uh, the fancy cars and i couldn't i couldn't find any guy anybody give me a free silk t-shirt or silk I'm in, I'm in if free it's free, shirt. it's for me. Yeah. This, is another, this is another free shirt, by the way. From Bootsy uh, and Sal, yeah, Lou, our buddy, go. yeah. So, <laughs> so uh, God, Murph and his free stuff. Anyway, um, the, the, I, I have a, I have a new thing for you, Murph. You're going to start running a charity to where you start giving away all your free stuff. No, then I won't have anything to wear. I know you're going to have to buy stuff, you cheap <laughs> bastard. <laughs> you can pay for your pool. Uh, back to, hey, but that was our that was our first digression. So it, it, we have a drinking game. So anytime I say, you know, back to our regularly scheduled podcast, but I digress, um, uh-huh. you get to take a shot. So everybody, if you're out there, take a shot. So Nate, back to our regularly scheduled podcast with you. So, um, so kind of tell us about the difference between working in the city versus working in the county. Were the crimes the same? The pace the same? What was different? Uh, Ogden was a little bit uh, more fast paced um a lot more calls a lot more volume coming in from ogden itself the the county uh in terms of calls was didn't have generally as many but the the cool thing is is and i kind of got a mix of both so when i was in ogden you handle so many calls they were always like hey one year of work in Ogden is equivalent to, to five years in a lot of other places just simply because of the call volume. I mean, we ran our asses off nonstop. Then the cool thing about the county was is because they didn't have uh, the same call volume, those guys were incredible at stirring the pot and going out and finding their own things like, you know, self-initiated type of of patrol work. And, uh, and you know, when I transferred over, those, those guys were just fantastic at that and so kind of was able to learn both you know had a ton of experience handling calls but but then learned you know how to really go out and stir the pot and and find your own stuff we call it how do you go out and start shit you know there's a professional shit starter you know you go out exactly exactly it's being proactive versus reactive yeah i mean what 
sometimes you have no choice to be reactive when you're handling call to call to call. But then there are some people, if there were no calls going on, they weren't doing anything. You had to drive up and check their pulse to make sure they were still, you know, mm-hmm. alive on duty. It's like, dude, you could be out, like your car can move. You know that, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The parking lot, the, the, the garden, the parking lots. <laughs> and, and like Murph guarding trains, not a train, not, not one train was stolen. Darn right. <laughs> right. I should have got a bonus for that, shouldn't I? You should have got, yeah. If some, but if somebody can steal a train, I'm going to take that guy. I'm going to buy that guy a drink. So yeah, yeah <laughs> more like power to him. With a stick and, it's like hitting him with a stick and they're like, what'd you just do? What was the, what was the prevalent type of crime in Weber County that you were, guys were dealing with on a routine basis? Was it drugs? Was it violence? Was it burglary? You know, what was it? You know, it's pretty much everything. Uh, Ogden City uh, had a lot of a, a lot of the violence. Domestic violences were were very high. Uh, a lot of drugs there as well. Um, Ogden is a hub for the Sinaloa cartel. Uh, one of the the main smuggling routes comes up through Salt Lake and Ogden, and then kind of splinters off to the to the rest of the country. You know, Montana and and the Dakotas and things like that. So so we had a lot of drugs we would deal with, uh, a lot of a lot of fights, a lot of domestic violence, that type of stuff. I had wow. no idea about that that Sinaloa connection. Holy cow. yeah! I mean, well, you got to have transportation routes, right? So were you were any of your guys working interdiction out on the highways? Yes. Yeah, so the the state troopers would always work interdiction, but specifically for for Weber County, um, they have a narcotic strike force, and there would be guys in there that would were specializing in interdiction. So Utah, you know, has a, a main interstate that runs all the way from California, you know, San Diego, all the way up through, and uh, and so that's kind of one of the main corridors, one of the, the the pipelines, I think, that's bringing it up, and and while. Ogden area and Salt Lake area is a hub. Um, so yeah, there was a lot of interdiction works, but we also had the trains and then, uh, and then Ogden has a small airport. And so there was interdiction work done out of that as well. So when did you start getting the chance to move out of patrol and up into doing the things that you wanted to do? So my first opportunity, they had an opening and they, they had this little unit called the, the community resource officers. Um, the sheriff's and this was at the sheriff's office. The sheriff's office contracts with numerous cities um, in Weber County to do the law enforcement for them. Some of these cities just don't have the the size or whatever to have their own police departments, or they found it was cheaper to contract with the sheriff's office. So, so we had nine different contract cities that we would work, and this community resource unit. Uh, Typically, when I when I first started, it was a bunch of kind of the retired on duty guys. They would go to the city council meetings and just kind of be there and, and handle little small city issues. But I saw some potential there. You know, I saw some potential because we weren't those guys weren't tied to the radios. They weren't having to handle calls. So there was a bunch of uh, my buddies and I that we started talking and we're like, you know, we ought to put in for that and we ought to kind of change that unit. And instead of you know, just being there for the little mayor type stuff. And we could really do some proactive self-initiated stuff and not have to handle calls anymore and really get out and stir the pot. And, uh, and so that's what we did. And we put in for it and, and we got it and everyone was laughing at us. They're like, why do you young guys want to go to this, to this old unit? And we're like, cause we got a plan. And, and so there was three of us that went and 
and and we kind of changed the way that they did it and we just had a lot of fun we were able to go out hunt dope hunt stuff like that yeah but there's a danger with that too because now you've upended the cushy little job a lot of these oh, guys have. Yeah. now yeah, somebody's going to expect the next people to show up to be hey why can't you be like nate and go out and arrest somebody well because yeah. you know i was just going to go to tea with the mayor and we were just going to discuss you know fishing yeah exactly yeah yeah that did happen but uh you know, it was how did the fun. community? How did the community take it when when you had these new uh, whippersnappers, these young kids coming in and now starting to turn things over and, and stir things up? How did the community react to that? You know, I think they actually liked it. I I, I still, you know, I'm an old school cop. I, that's the way I am, and and uh, I still think the public wants that. They they want guys to that are out doing you know doing shit that they shouldn't be doing. They want to see those guys get the handcuffs slapped on them. Yeah, and they, you know, I think communities aren't looking for somebody. You got to have the traffic units, but they're not looking, you know, to to be recognized as a radar ticket city. That's all you're going to. You go five minutes, five miles over the speed limit, you're going to get a speeding ticket. And I'm not putting down traffic cops because you do. There's Jack out there here in Orlando. Holy, I wish they had. Yeah, I wish they had a lot more traffic units, especially out where we live in the middle of the night, because you can hear them out here drag racing and spinning their tires. And exactly, it's, uh, it's wide open here, but. You know, you're out there actually doing what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah, and I, you know, and I think I say I think that's what the public wants. I mean, it. I think there's still a silent majority of people that that's what they're hoping for. You know, they they want to be able to to go to bed and and wake up and not have their shit stolen off their porch and and their car still there. Well, if Murph had his shit stolen, it'd be hard to put a value on it. What's the value of it? I don't know. I got it for free. Oh, we can't put a value. <laughs> you take my free T-shirts. We're gonna fight. That's right. <laughs> Might be one-sided, but we're gonna fight. <laughs> well, the other thing too is you mentioned uh, the narcotic strike force, the the Weber County. Um, uh, you had a area. So, how did the being the community services officer lead you into then that next part of that? So, w- what kind of stuff did you get yourself in now that you got this? Now that you started saying, "Hey, let's do this," did you actually start turning over and getting into some dope cases or some other neat stuff? We did. We started. We we started working a lot of, of dope cases, and and that kind of transitioned. And for me, then there was an opening in uh, in our investigations bureau in in the major crimes, and so I put in for that. Ended up getting that. And I went to uh, investigations and, and worked that for uh, about two years. How many years did you have on when you got that detective slot? Yeah, I was about six, which was unheard of back then. Why is that? Say, that's not most a guys. Time. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. Just because of the time wise, you know, most of the sergeants back then were fifteen to eighteen year guys before they'd get get sergeant. And so I remember when I got it and I got promoted way young, and I went to my first sergeant meeting and. And they were all, you know, making fun of me, telling Go me I still coffee, had. coffee, boy. We need coffee. In yeah, here. exactly. You know, you still have a milk mustache, you know, <laughs> you know that type of stuff. <laughs> well, I am looking at it over the camera. It is a little cheesy. I got to tell you, pal, you got to work on it. Oh. Hey, you no, know, this mustache, I, I, it's actually, uh, it's. I got a buddy that's always trying to tease me. He's like, that's a fireman mustache. And I was like, that's an Old West Sheriff mustache. There's a huge difference. <laughs> hey, Morgan, you see how big he is. Our, you know, our listeners, we can see each other on the videos here. <laughs> He's a big boy. <laughs> yeah, we're only separated by 2,000 miles, so I feel mm-hmm. relatively secure right now. Yeah, you might make a special <laughs> trip over to Kansas next time you come to town. You never know, you know? Yeah, well, I'm in Virginia, Murph, remember. Yeah, but you go to – the Kansas still allows you to come once a year, right? 
Yeah, yeah, they do. Uh, especially to go back and do my qualification, you know, keep my HR two eighteen, you know, our mm-hmm. our card. So, but uh, so yeah, so you're the youngster. So why is it that you got sergeant um, ahead of all of these other guys who are spending 15, 18 years? I mean, what what do you think was it? Simply because you had that initiative that you're doing the performance, turning in the work, making a difference. I think that's what it was. You, you know, the, the, to make sergeant was a whole testing process. Um, there was a written test. You had an oral interview board. You had you had to go through all these hoops to make it, and they'd score and grade you. And I just came out on top. It was uh, the second time I tested. The, the first time I tested, I think I came out number five on the list, and everyone was like, oh, wow, what a fluke, you know, again, kind of teasing me. And and uh, and then the the second time I tested, I came out on top. And like I said, all the all the older guys would, you know, trying to make all these young jokes. And I'm like, listen, I you know, I I can give shit right back. I would tell them, I'd be like, don't don't blame me that it takes me six years to do something it took you eighteen to do. Yeah, darn right, and that's that's the way it is in the cop culture. You got to give give it right back to them. That endears exactly. you. That endears you to the older guys too. Yeah, oh, there, there. But you know, the Absolutely. other thing too is, hey guys. Go ask you. You don't like the results. Go talk to the promotion board. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I was one of these guys all throughout my entire career. All my promotions, all my assignments. I've prided myself on the fact that you know I wasn't always endeared by the administration. Sometimes they, I, I think, they considered me Neither a pain was in I. the ass. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, I prided myself on all my all of my uh, promotions or transfers were. Hard work earned. Yeah. You know, that was a big thing for me. I didn't want anyone to give me nothing. Well, and if you're if you're out doing the job, people are going to complain on you because they don't like exactly. being put in jail. But you're doing exactly. your job. And if you're doing yep. it right, you've got nothing to worry about. Exactly. If you make it through a law enforcement career with no complaints, you probably have not been doing your job right. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. And because it's a fact, people can complain. And you know what? So quick sidebar. This is not a digression. This is a sidebar. A big difference. You can take this optional to take a drink. Um, but no, the International Association of Chiefs of Police, they did a whole study around the use of in-car cameras and everything else because people will make complaints. And they started looking at it. And when they had the video recorded, you know, with the in-car cameras, this is before the body cams. Mm-hmm. 90% of the time, the officer was absolved of any uh, liability, you know, was absolved of any wrongdoing. And not just that, well, it happened, but it, you don't do it again. It was like, it didn't happen. And yeah. so it's like, the thing is you will get complaints doing your job. And so many of those were unfounded. I mean, a lot of people, the guys at NYPD used to call it Sergeant in a box. It's like, no, it's not Sergeant in a box, but really most of the times when they got out there, you'd, you'd approach people and say, look, uh, you know, this, you're on uh, audio and video, uh, you know, this, this traffic stops being recorded and people would still do dumb shit right mm-hmm. in front of you. Cause people are absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, as a supervisor, you know, that got, I think it got guys way more out of trouble than it ever got anyone into trouble. And look, if you're doing something that got you into trouble, well, there's a piece of advice. Don't do it. <laughs> yeah. You, you knew, I think everyone knows the rules. So, you know, there's a difference between honest mistakes and, and guys that know better. So. Right. And, and the, you know, a lot of police officers and, and I was probably like this as a young cop, you know, you, you, you don't get complacent, but you probably think you're a little tougher or maybe more important than you really are. You're a public servant, what you are, and you're supposed to be serving the public. There's the title, right? Yep. And I think originally that's why we all got into law enforcement was just to help others. 
Yeah, I agree. Well, I did it because chicks dig uniforms. Um, and <laughs> that's, a, that's the side. That's the side benefit, isn't it? I know you're wife, so I'm not going to say anything about. Well, it. but this is when I was single. But even when I was instructing later and teaching, you know, new rookies and stuff, I said, remember, you know, even if you're ugly and in uniform, people, some there's a certain group of people that are still going to like you. So just keep that in perspective. Yeah. It's not you. It's yeah, the uniform. Yeah. You know, the uniform. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you started getting all these stats. You started getting promoted. So when you got promoted to sergeant, um, was that in investigations or did you have to go back to patrol? I had to go back to patrol. Uh, so I went back to patrol and ran a ran a patrol crew. Um, and then there was an opening for the sergeant in the narcotics unit. It's and again, it's called Weber Morgan Narcotic Strike Force, which was always my goal. That was that was always Where my goal. Where does the Morgan come from? So there, there's a Morgan County, which is just to the east of Weber County. And Morgan is a very rural county. And they have a sheriff's office and that's it. And it's about nine guys at the sheriff's office and uh, no other law enforcement in the county. So they didn't have the resources or anything to do their own like long-term drug type investigation. So they contracted with the strike force to do it for them. Now, does that, did that mean then you guys also had to get um, – uh, sworn in, you know, with the other county? I mean, because you have to have, you, you had authority for Weber County, but you're, you didn't have authority in Morgan County, right? No, in Utah, when you get sworn in, you are sworn in for the entire state. So even though I may be working in Weber County, I had law enforcement powers throughout the state. Yeah. And that's what I meant. I mean, normally you carry either that or get a commission card because uh, that's the way it was though with like city officers. Though, if you wanted to enforce laws in the county, were you able to do that or did you have to have a, I mean, there, you, there's certain things you can do. You can make arrests when they're, when it's like in front of you, but it's like, if you're out there actually doing work, like to be on a task force, a lot of our guys usually had to get a commission card from the sheriff's office or the DEA task force. They would get credentials from them. Yeah, we didn't. It, like I say, the the way that the law's written is is you have the, the power. So, I mean, I I could have even when I was at the sheriff's office, I could go to to Morgan if I needed to and and help make arrest. Now, obviously, there's there's unwritten rules and and different things about working together and making sure that you know people are aware of what you're doing when you're in their areas. But uh, yeah, you didn't have to have any type of a commission card or anything. It, you just could they just work. don't want you to go poaching in somebody else's county without a little bit of a heads up, right? Exactly. Well, the sheriff, exactly. your sheriff's not going to be real happy if you're enforcing crimes in somebody else's county. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, they're they're like, what are you know? Unless it had some sort of a nexus right. to exactly. to our county. Yeah. So let's talk about that then. So you finally get to the uh, uh, the task force, the strike force. So tell us how's that composed? What, you know, what do what do you got in terms of the number of people? You know, how what and how do you guys develop your cases? Do you work with the uh, don't expect anything crew? I mean, I'm sorry, DEA. Um. <laughs> yeah. So the the strike force was cool. It was it's a super coveted position. It's highly competitive, highly sought after to get into that unit, and it's a multi jurisdictional agency, meaning it consists of law enforcement officers from all over the county uh different you know the you, you had all your different city police you, you know ogden city being one of them there's there's other cities in weber county they would contribute manpower the sheriff's office would contribute manpower and then once you were selected for this assignment you essentially left your home agency and would go and work narcotics we didn't work out of a police department or the sheriff's office so you guys were kind of like your own entity in a sense yes 
Yep, yep. We had our own budget, our own building, um, everything. So when you got that assignment, you left. And and we typically would – so it was under the command of a lieutenant, um, and then you would have two sergeants and then anywhere between nine to 12 different agents from the different police departments around. And, and then we would um, be cross-sworn. We had some guys that were cross-sworn with DEA. So we worked with the DEA and we also had some guys that were uh, cross-worn as FBI. We had one guy that was cross-worn to, to be on an, as an ATF agent um, and then some marshals as well. That's sweet. That's sweet. Yeah. You got it. Got the cover. You used a term though. You said agents. So why is that a term of art? Because there are deputies, there's detectives, there's officers, but you said agents. Was that just because of the task force or is that a Utah like statute statutory thing? No, it's just the the terminology used that once you went to the strike force rather than a detective or anything, uh, the term was always just agents like narcotic agent. Okay. Because everybody wants to be an agent, Morgan. Well, <laughs> not a, well, see, it was the FBI who coined that because he, F. J. Edgar didn't want to be just an agent, so he made all their guys special agents. Yeah, no, they're special now. <laughs> there is our mandatory dogging of the FBI on the episode, so that's, that's check. Right. We've completed that, yeah. so we have to do that. state law. I'm sorry, state law in Virginia and in the and then Florida. in Florida. So. That's it. So you guys started walking this. So when you first get on there, um, what kind of cases, what kind of things are you guys doing? Pretty much we're responsible for all major drug crimes in Weber and then obviously Morgan County, as I explained, that they would contract with us. So when I was talking earlier that we had that Sinaloa connection, that was primarily what we would do on a day-to-day basis is, is uh, you know, long-term, larger investigations, usually related to to drug trafficking coming out of Mexico. And, and again, our cartel of choice was the Sinaloa cartel. Were you guys doing wiretaps? We do. We did a lot of wiretaps, um, a lot of long-term type things. Um, and then we had guys that specialized in the interdiction. Like I said, we had the highways. The I-15 is, is, the, is the main corridor that goes through Utah, goes all the way from southern Utah, all the way, continues through northern Utah. Um, so we had guys doing interdiction. We would do wiretaps. We would do uh, undercover stuff. I mean, kind of a mix of anything if it was narcotic related. Just out of curiosity, where did your budget come from? Primarily, we uh, were getting grants from like Haida. There you go. Um, we also had a, a special tax that uh, gave us a little bit of money per uh, each individual in the county. It was a, a population type tax. And then Utah had some grants as well that we would we would get but most of it was Haida funded is that the rocky mountain Haida or which one did yeah yeah rocky mountain Haida. okay yeah nice. i think that's part of too is that part of so there's also a thing called armin the rocky mountain information network there was part of the um uh the seven information sharing the risks the regional information sharing mm-hmm. projects so i think there's armin and mocic mclaughlin you know all those different ones that are out there so yeah there's lots of money now uh how much funding how much did seized assets play in terms of your funding uh, they they played a pretty big role, um, especially if we got a federal case. If we could take a case federally, then we would get a lot more of the federal seizure assets. Utah, a few years prior to me transferring down to the strike force, had changed their law, they, their seizure laws. Um, it used to be you'd seize something, and what you seized, essentially, you know, once you went through the court process, that you could turn around and use that. And 
a, a bunch of there was kind of a libertarian type group got together. They didn't like that. They were, you know, trying to make the argument that we would go out and the police were seizing things just simply because they wanted it or, or whatever. And, you know, and so the law was changed to where if you seized it under a state case, that money went to the state and then the state could turn around and divvy it up how they chose. So they, I guess the idea being that they thought they were taking away any type of an incentive to, to abuse it. Yeah. yeah, and we saw we saw DOJ. You know, they lose that they lost their balls there for a while, and under whatever administration was in power at the time, and you know, really restricted the asset seizures. And you know, like we say, we say on the show as well as Javier and I say when we we're, we're we're doing our presentations is, if you want to hurt somebody, you put them in jail. If you want to make them cry, take their stuff. That's that, that is the absolute truth. I mean, and I think that's everywhere. I, I used to tell everyone I'd be like, some of these guys we'd get, they'd been in jail so many times they could care less. They were it was just another reunion with their buddies. But we took their Jeep. Holy shit, they that was like a big deal. That you know, we'd get people to flip for that. They'd be like, I don't care about going to jail. And we oh, we're gonna seize your Jeep. Hold on, hold on, hold yeah, on. I'll tell you, I know, I know somebody. I know somebody. <laughs> you know, think about it. I mean, that's why they're into business to start with, is for all the money that could buy all the, the stupid things that they buy. Believe me, well, you know as well as that I was that, that was one of the great things about our Kansas Department of Revenue folks. When we go out and do a case, um, our seizure laws were a little different. We were able to file and keep the majority of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was on the state, though, anytime you see something, it went back to the state general fund. That which is like you're talking about. You didn't didn't go back to the agency. I think they've changed some of that now. But yeah, I remember great thing of going out with Kansas Department of Revenue agents. They would have the drug tax stamp law. So if you had yeah. a pound of marijuana, you had to have a tax stamp that basically equaled twice the price of what a pound would cost. Yeah. And if you didn't have that, they could seize that and then penalize it. So a thousand dollars of a tax of what you should have paid for became $10,000 in, uh, I think, uh, a liability. And so we were seizing, uh, uh, big screen TVs back when they were coming out, we were seizing like say pickup trucks. Where'd you get this couch? Uh, it's gone. You know, <laughs> yep. I, we uh, yeah. cleaned out one guy's house one time, by the time we got done, it says, Hey, it's move in ready for the next tenant. You know, everything was basically <laughs> gone. Hey, th- did you guys have uh, representation from the Utah national guard? Yeah, we did. We had two Intel analysts that were um, in there as well. They are phenomenal. I mean, they're, yeah. they're uh, they had, well, when I was working in special operations division with DEA back in DC and a hundred years ago, they supported so many wiretap investigations because they have so many linguists who were missionaries out in the field. And they're fluent in those different languages. Yeah. That's the good thing about Utah is there's so many languages. I mean, any language i mean you'd be you'd pull over a car it would be the strangest thing and uh and you'd get on the radio and you'd be like does anyone speak Cantonese?" yeah and you'd all of a sudden you'd hear some guy i do i'll be right there gotcha boss and you're just like <laughs> what the heck okay <laughs> I thought they were phenomenal you know what they were some of the best people to ever work with as well yeah yeah we had two we had two national guard guys that were full-time analysts for us yeah. Do you remember, Steve, I don't know if you remember this. Did Did you ever use this thing called the AT&T language line? No. I know that Connie and their, uh, and their medical facilities that she's worked at had access to things like that. Maybe it's the same thing. Yeah. Well, it's sort of the thing. So they would, you could, AT&T would have this service. So you could call up, say, hey, I need a specific language. And they would put somebody on there. So I had, I was interviewing somebody one night and it was like a, 
a native dialect from like Southern Peru. And it's like, then we had, I mean, look, we had all different languages we could have got to, but it's like, no, that one. So I'm on the line and it's a drive-by shooting. It's a serious case. Somebody's wounded in the hospital. So I got to interview this person. (laughs) Two weeks later, Lieutenant comes in, where's this $350 bill from AT&T for? (laughs) It was expensive. It was an hour and it was 350 bucks. Yeah. Translation fees are expensive. Oh my God. So after that, it was like, well, if they're only slightly injured, if it's only a flesh wound, we may not, you know. <laughs> we'll try anyway. Mexican Spanish. It doesn't work. Oh well, we try. Yeah, that's right. We tried. Yeah, exactly. Oh yeah, we had one. We had one though too. We were fortunate though because it was like another like native dialect that came out of South America. They spoke that, but they could speak Spanish, but not English. So we found a guy who spoke that who could then take the Spanish and then translate. So I'm speaking to the guy. He translates from Spanish into the native dialect. They respond to him back in uh, the native dialect. He translates it back to me. I mean, it's, it was a convoluted thing, but it's like it took yeah. four hours to do what should have been a 30-minute interview. You got to do what you got to do. Got to do what you got to do. Man's got to do. Hey, <laughs> that's, that's what Josie Wales said, the outlaw Josie Wales. Man's got to do what a man's got to do. That might be where I got that from. That's the best yeah, movie of all time. <laughs> oh, that's what that is. <laughs> Dying ain't much of a living, boy. Oh, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, that pretty good. That sounded pretty accurate there. Yeah. Well, I like the one now. Was it six shots or was it five? You see, well, I don't remember, but seeing this is a, a 44 Magnum, the world's most powerful handgun, and it'll blow your head clean off. You got to ask yourself one question, punk. Do you feel lucky? Well, do you do this? <laughs> and for our listeners, I apologize. He's doing impersonations now. Holy that was, cow. <laughs> that was not a digression. That was an impersonation. That does not count for the yeah. drinking game. So uh, if they tuned in right then, they might think you're interviewing Clint. There you go. There you go. (laughs) Have some, or that, or Sean Connery. Give me one ping for Sully. One ping only, please. All right, back to our. That was a. That was back to our regularly scheduled broadcast. But I digress. So I forgot where were we, Nate? (laughs) I totally forgot too. Oh, we're talking about National National Guard Guard. interpreters. You needed some useful Cantonese. They would have them there. Okay. Uh, Yep. See, we have fun on this show. <laughs> now we're now we're back on track. So uh, let's start setting context now, for because we're going to talk about the shooting you were involved in. So, um, how long? So we want to. What we want to do is first of all book in this because we want to do. We want to um, uh, make this an honor. We want to you know do this episode yes. dedicated to the memory of Agent Gerald Daniel Frankham. End of watch, January fifth, actually twenty twelve. He was shot on January fourth. 2012 with the Ogden uh, Police Department in Utah. So um, we kind of want to book in that say that this we're talking now January 4th, 2012 is where the shooting happened. So back us up in time. The other rule we have is we don't give any airtime to the piece of shit. So um, yeah, I don't I don't ever talk about his name. No, we don't either. So then we're in sync. So we just refer to him simply as POS piece of shit one or piece of shit two. So since it's singular, we'll just say the POS. So Let's start talking call about shitbird. I like shitbird. Shit, I like shitbird. Shithead. <laughs> yeah. 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 They all fit. Yep. Uh, and we will talk. So we're not going to give this away, but there is a unique development to this case, Murph. So uh, mm-hmm. don't go anywhere, as they say. Uh, let's start setting the context. So when did this shitbird piece of shit, when did this guy start coming onto your radar? You know, so primarily on a, like I said, with saying mostly what we were doing with was cartel type stuff. And that was our focus. And we didn't really deal a lot with marijuana. Just wasn't a big deal. We didn't we didn't care about it. Uh, you know, 
there's too much out there. We'd, we didn't really care. If we dealt with marijuana, it would be up in Morgan County, that rural county. We'd get these grows up there, you know, 10, 15, 20, 25,000 plant grows where it's a really remote county and you'd, and it would be cartel where the cartels would come in and they would go and live up in these very, very remote areas and and grow these huge plots of of marijuana live there all year long cultivate it and they would do this year after year and typically we would get one of those you know every fall but if if we were doing marijuana those were the type of marijuana cases we did uh but what happened is is we had this uh tip line and the tip line was an anonymous phone line that came into our office and this was mostly for like your neighborhood nuisance type stuff you know the the neighbors doing this, you know, everybody thinks their neighbors, uh, is, uh, cooking meth. Like that's, I mean, everyone, er- everywhere you go, everyone, oh, my neighbor's cooking meth. Rule that's number like, one yeah. on the show kids. What do we say? Don't do meth. That is rule number one on the show. <laughs> you know, most of the meth's actually coming from Mexico, but everyone thinks that, but any type, any, anything like that, we had this anonymous tip line and it was great because it was the type of stuff that, you know, the mayors or, or the chiefs of police or the sheriffs were going to get their complaints about. So people could call in and, and leave tips. And in September of 2011, Scal calls in and she's like, Hey, my boyfriend is uh, growing weed. I don't know why, if she was mad at him or what, but she did the whole, uh, he got weed, he got weed thing. You know, that, that video, if you've ever seen the Chris Rock video, she calls in and, and she's like, Hey, my, my boyfriend's growing weed. He's growing it in the basement. He, he's growing anywhere from, from 15 to, to 50 plants at a time. He'll harvest it a couple of times a year. He's getting two to four pounds and, and he'll sell it. And the tip comes in, uh, mostly that's one of the things that those national guard analysts did was would, they would get those tips and type them up and, and send them off to the agents. And so when I went down to the strike force, I was one of the sergeants. I didn't even, you know, this wasn't something that even would rise to my level. I, I didn't know anything about it. Um, it was assigned to a guy named, uh, Jason Vanderwarf and he gets it and, uh, reads it over, calls her because on this particular one, she had left her name and number. So he calls her back and, Hey, you know, I'm just calling you. She gives him the same information. Hey, yeah, he's, he's growing, gives the address in Ogden and, and, uh, and kind of the same information. And he's like, okay, thanks. Puts it in a file and it sits on his desk. Cause again, it wasn't, that's not our focus. Not a that's priority. Not, not a priority at all. I mean, those types of cases were coming in all the time. So that was September, 2011 when it came in, but we didn't actually get around to it till, uh, the end of the year in 2011. So, and what had kind of happened is, and still to this day, I, I think this is probably one of the greatest accomplishments I've ever pulled off in my career. I was able to convince our lieutenant, who was our commander over the strike force, that he needed to send the entire unit to Oahu to an undercover school. Sweet. Because, you know, yeah, you're a hero. Oh, you know. my God. <laughs> you're a hero in the unit now. Yeah, that's what I told him. I'm like, LT, I was like, you cannot get quality undercover training on the mainland. You have to go to Hawaii. Everyone everyone in law enforcement knows that the, that the best undercover training is in Hawaii. I mean, that's just a fact. <laughs> and you sold this with a straight face? Yeah, totally sold it with a straight face. I don't know. I don't remember. You know, I've always kind of considered myself a, a little bit of a good bullshitter. I don't remember exactly what it was. Was my was – my, uh, 
you're just selling point, but you're just honing your undercover skills. Exactly. Exactly. What did we learn from Guy Hargraves uh, about? We was talking about the polygrapher. So this is a guy who actually used to polygraph people for the CIA. Uh One of the people that they hard had a hard time getting a good read on were undercover police officers. Yeah. Because yeah. they're so good at pulling this shit off. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this highly important training that you wanted. Yeah, it, it was, It was. you know, it, it was incredible training. And like we told the LT, you can't get it on the mainland. So not only did he send the entire unit, but we also convinced him that he needed to send everybody's wives uh, as well. Oh, wait a minute. You, you had pictures on this guy, didn't you? There is no way somebody's going to agree to all of this. <laughs> he did. He did. And he's the only one that didn't end up going. He sent all of us and he stayed back. He's like, I'll man the shop. You guys go. Wow. So You, yeah, you again, guys are still buying him free beers, right? <laughs> pretty much. Again, I, I consider it one of my, my greatest achievements in my law enforcement career. <laughs> And that's saying something when you hear the rest of this stories too. So, uh, yeah. So, yeah. So where'd you go when you said you went there? Where'd you go? We went to Oahu, um, and and we went to an undercover school by, uh, he recently passed away. I I love the guy. I don't know if you guys know him. His name was uh, Charlie Fuller, one of Charlie Fuller's undercover schools. So, um, went there, had a great time in Hawaii. I know we, that was about the first of December. Uh, I, I know I, I, we probably got there around the 6th or the 7th because we went to Pearl Harbor on Pearl Harbor Day. So I, I know we were there. I've been there. That That is an amazing um, – you take the boat ride over and yeah, you're over there yeah. on, on top of the USS Arizona. And there's a story they talk about because it's still weeping oil. I mean you'll see a little bit of oil come up. Yeah, it's, yep. And they will say <laughs> that will continue to weep oil until the last uh, – I think a member of the USS Arizona or the last World War II veteran dies because a lot – I was there when they did one of the services. They interred one of the shipmates. They took him down underwater and interred him in the Arizona. Wow. Yeah, it, that was amazing, and especially to be there on that day of all days. That that was really cool. And I think we – so we got home from Hawaii around probably December 15th-ish. And uh, you, you, know, you buy, everyone, no, wait a minute. Hold on. You bypass too much stuff. You just don't get to do a week in Hawaii and not tell us, okay, come on. You know, all right, all right. Was it the best undercover training you ever had, or did you not care? You know, uh, well, we didn't care that much, but it probably was the best. For any for any administrators listening, it is the best training in the country, and you have to send your guys there. <laughs> we had a charge for that one. That's there's an ad for yeah. that. <laughs> now, had you ever been to Hawaii before? No, I hadn't. And, uh, and so I actually, you know, I took my son, most of the guys took their wives, but, but I had a, I had a guy, a little guy, he was 10 at the time. And so I took him and, uh, he was kind of, you know, I, I had three kids. He was my middle son. He was kind of adopted by the strike force. He was like the mascot. Like he just loved the guys. And, you know, we were a really close unit. Uh, when you, to get down there, you know, again, it's very coveted and, and they only want to take the best of the guys in around the best investigators around the county. And uh, when you get down there with guys like that, that that you work well with, that have the same mentality that, you know, want to get out there and and uh, and get after it, you become real close. And that's what happened with our unit. We, we were all friends. We became I, I knew everyone's kids. I knew everyone's wives. We would we would uh, barbecues and, you know, obviously train together and 
And so my son went with us and, and that was a lot of fun. That's cool. And, and you know what, that, uh, greatly reduces the, uh, alcohol consumption when you have a 10 year old with you, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It did for me. It didn't for anyone else, uh, but it, but it, <laughs> you it can totally live vicariously through their drinking. Well, now they have the responsibility yeah. of drinking yours portion as well. So, I mean, you really yeah, put a burden on them. I put them in a tough spot. So, <laughs> and I got to tell you too, when I was there too, some of the best food I had was the pineapples and stuff that came right off the plantations. Mm-hmm. Oh, good man, stuff. that yeah. was, tasted so good. Mm. Yeah, and and the Hawaii guys, the Hawaii cops were so like so accommodating and and took good, such good care of us because I don't think they got a ton of guys. You know, I remember there was a part of the email, the training that was sent out that I found, and it, you know, it said we challenge any mainlanders to come out to this training and and so when we got there we're like hey we accepted your challenge we're here and 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 they took us under our wings and i mean they took us to luau's they they did all kinds of, nice. of of fantastic stuff for us and some of them i still know to this day so did you get laid <laughs> they do every every time you get there you know my son did too he got laid as well as soon as you get off the airplane <laughs> oh lord thank you very much we might need to explain that for some of our listeners so lays lais so yeah. they call it when you come off the plane or they used to do it too they would put a lay around you so you got laid thank you yeah a little flower necklace type thing <laughs> You so, <laughs> sorry. You know what, Nate? I'm not so sure it was a good thing pairing you up with Morgan here. <laughs> My mind works in different ways, Murph. Oh, I, yeah. and Nate's right there with you. That's what's worrying me. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. No, but we we had a good time. You know, some funny stories coming out of out of Hawaii. So we, the hotel we stayed in was this huge tower. Because if you've ever been to Honolulu, you know it's a this you know massive skyscrapers, and one of the the hotel we were at was one of them. And I remember uh, Vanderwerf uh, was wanting to screw with Jared, and because uh, we all had our own rooms, and but we were scattered throughout the hotel, different levels. And Jared goes walking into his room one night, and Vanderwerf's laying in his bed. Couldn't figure out how he'd got in there, and uh, it turns out Vanderwerf had like jumped from balcony to balcony to balcony down to get into his room. I mean, just crazy stupid stuff oh you know, but was gosh. alcohol involved a hundred percent a hundred percent which probably made him you know limber enough to actually pull it off i, I gotta tell you a quick story <laughs> we spoke at law enforcement true problem. confessions on game of crimes yeah i'm not gonna tell you what state it was but it wasn't one of the bigger states uh, or the at least the uh area we were in speaking to wasn't uh, major major cities and so the hotel was where they have this law enforcement conference every year. And it was either gang or narcotics investigators. And it's an old embassy suites. And you know how the, the middle part is open. And apparently, you know, once you reach a certain alcoholic level, the uh, repellers come in and rig their lines and people are repelling from the top <laughs> floor down into the lobby. And, and they're having races to see who can get down the quickest. And <laughs> the other guests are checking out. <laughs> Yeah, for anyone that doesn't know, there is nothing like a narcotics conference in terms of a party. You like that them. is a party. You put a bunch of narcotics cops together in a hotel, and uh, and there is some stories. And see, you just that. wanted to bypass that. Yeah, we were in Hawaii for a week, and then and it's like, no, no, no. One thing we've always found is it's not the blah blah blah. We rewind a little bit. See, look at the stuff we pulled out of you. So 
That's <laughs> <laughs> true. That's true. I mean, we had a great time. I mean, it was it was a good time. It was a, it was a lot of fun. Have you ever been to the Utah Narcotics Conference? Yeah, yeah. That was kind of a mainstay for us. We we love that. That was back when I was in it. It was in September, usually the first week of September. Yep. And uh, so by then, you know, you'd gone nine months working cases, and guys were ready to blow off steam and. They held it at a casino just right outside in Nevada, just right on the border. Yep. About and I mean, I spoke at that about five or six years ago, and we thought, why yeah, are I, we I in, remember why are we in Nevada if, if this is a Utah conference and it was yeah, the casino? Yeah, because because, uh, because the party aspect, guys guys want to go and blow off some steam, you know, and so and obtain so alcoholic beverages, which is tough to do in the Utah uh, region. Some of those regions. Yeah. Yep, yep. And, you know, and it's not the same, but five years ago, Utah's alcohol content in their beer was lower than everywhere else in the country, believe it or not. That's what, not be- it doesn't qualify it? as beer then. I'm sorry. You guys can't handle yeah. any liquor out there or what? Well, that was by the state, the state law. They, they, they made it 2% lower than everywhere else. So, yeah. So, you, you know, so guys were always wanting to go to Nevada to get beer because, you know, you had to drink twice as much in Utah. Well, hey, I've got some good Belgian beers that are. Some of them are ten to fourteen percent. You only need one of those. So, yeah, that yeah, that would be uh, highly coveted here in Utah. <laughs> oh, wait a minute! I got a new idea for a business. Okay, <laughs> it's called smuggling. smuggling. Exactly. <laughs> it's not smuggling when you legally obtain the contraband. Mm-hmm. So it is if you're bringing it into a state where it's banned. It's not. It's not illegal to bring beer into Utah. It's just illegal to sell it in Utah. Oh, oh! So you're going to give it away? No, I can't. I'm not going <laughs> to tell you everything, you cop. Come on, that's a great business plan. If you're going to give it away, uh, we get the uh, what was the bandit smoking the bandit? That's what's yeah. going to happen yeah. here. Eastbound and down, <laughs> loaded up and trucking. All right, so uh, that was a digression that you can blame Murph on that. So back to our regularly scheduled podcast. That's drinking. That's like my furry. That's yeah. like my furry. All right. So we were talking about, so you come back from this. So like you said, it kind of set on the shelf. So what made you resurrect it after you came back from the conference? Was it the fact that you had just gone through this training or did something else come up? No. So most of the guys, when we got back from Hawaii, uh, wanted to take some time off for the holiday, spend with their family. You know, we got back, like I say, the 15th or 16th, somewhere around there of December. Christmas is coming up. So guys naturally were just like, you know what, I've, you know, we worked so hard that they didn't get their vacations during the year. And so a lot of people would be sitting on user loose it happened every year. So guys were like, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to burn my vacation down. I'm going to take some time off for Christmas, which is what pretty much everyone did. So the unit pretty much shut down that month of December between Hawaii and, and the holidays. So it's about the last week of December, somewhere probably around the 28th or so of December. I came into work. Um, most of the guys were still, on vacation. But as I came in, um, there was two guys, uh, Jason Vanderwerf, another guy named Sean Grogan. It's probably about one o'clock in the afternoon. And they were putting on some gear to identify themselves as police, like, you know, jackets, raid stuff type stuff. Um, so I asked them, I said, Hey, what are you guys doing? And they said, Oh, we're going to go catch up on all of these. We call them T cases or tip cases from the the hotline that came in they're gonna we're gonna go catch up on a lot of our t cases that have been sitting here that we've uh you know 
basically kind of been neglected. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't get to. And without having the whole team there to, to do some of the bigger things that we would do, um, this was a perfect time to go out and kind of catch up on those. So I said, Hey, I'll, uh, I'll jump in with you. Um, let me go grab my stuff. So I went and geared up as well, you know, put on everything to, to show that we're police officers, you know, cause we were, a lot of times we were undercover. We had the long beards and different things like that. But so we gear up, jump in one of the cars and, and we start driving. And I said, Hey, where are we going to first? And Vanderwerf says, well, I have this case that, uh, this guy's supposedly growing, uh, weed in his basement. And he tells me the details, you know, came in in September and, and, and all the details we talked earlier, you know, a couple of 15, 20, 30 plants in his, in his basement, he's harvesting it and, and so on. So the plan was, as we would head up to the house, um, we're dressed as police. We're, we're trying to, to be police and, and we're going to do what's called a knock and talk, um, where essentially you just go up, you make contact with the suspect and you talk your way into the house and 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 get him to just basically give you uh your drugs um give him give you his drugs without having to to get like a search warrant or anything like that we're just talking him out of his drugs and, and before you go any further um i know you've, you've researched this guy does he have a criminal rest or rec- criminal background does he have uh anything no bad? not at all he has he has no no criminal back uh history at all he we had uh we knew that he had a firearm. He had purchased a firearm, but I mean, this is Utah, and and I mean specifically Ogden. Ogden has a long history of firearms. Everybody in Utah has a firearm. You know, John Browning, the great gun inventor, the you know Browning Firearms is is here. He was from Ogden, so so that was not a red flag at all. I mean, everyone everyone has a gun. He had no criminal history. I, I think he had a traffic a traffic ticket. It was all. So we go up to the house. Uh, the plan is, is again, to identify ourselves as police, talk to him, say, hey, you know, you can't do this, kind of a, a no-no, and, and, and take his plans. We, we would never have arrested him, never would have taken him to jail, nothing like that. Um, get to the house. Again, it's probably 1.30 in the afternoon, sun's out, it's bright. Uh, we're dressed as police. We knock on the front door. And, uh, and I remember Vanderwerf knocked and, and he starts calling out. He's like, Hey, it's the police department. Uh, that's how we would identify ourselves. We would never be like, Hey, it's the strike, you know, too confusing. So we would just knock and say, Hey, it's the police department. Can you come to the door? We need to talk to you. And, uh, and the, the house, the, the blinds were drawn. So you couldn't see in the front of it at all. Couldn't see any movement. We, we knocked for a couple of minutes trying to get someone to come to the door. Nobody did. Well, there was a carport on the south side of the home, and there was a door at the carport as well. So we moved over to the carport, and we start knocking on that door, thinking, okay, well, maybe maybe he'll hear it better from this door. So, same thing, you know, knocking on the door. Hey, it's the police department. We just need to talk to you. Uh, can you come to the door? And, and we got no response. But the interesting thing about this door was there was a window in it. Uh, it was a wooden door, but there was a window, uh, and so you could see into the home. And as you looked in that window, there was like a little four by four foot landing, and then there was four stairs leading up to the left that you could tell went into like a kitchen area. And then there was about ten stairs that led straight down into the basement of this home. It's kind of a cottage style home. 
And as you look into the basement, the basement was completely unfinished. But there was a room that had been kind of put in down there, obviously makeshift after the fact, uh, done up with like plywood and stuff. And it had a door on it that didn't fit real well. And you could see all these power cords running from the basement into this room. And the basement itself was 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 dimly there was no lights on it was you know it was it was somewhat dark and you could see a ton of light coming out from under this deep this door of this room and then as you start looking around we start seeing things and we're pointing them out to each other you know you see these long sticks long grow sticks and we start to see different empty chemicals down there like plant type chemicals you know fertilizers things like that you can see different venting and then there was a garbage can next to us right at that same door and the lid was it's one of the city-owned garbage cans a big plastic garbage can and and the lid you know flops down and flops up well the lid was flopped back so you could see into the garbage can i mean so so legally where we're standing you can see into the home you can also see into the garbage can inside baseball kind of term that's called in plain view in other words you had a right to be where you were you saw something in plain view now had you lifted up the lid of the garbage can and looked in, some lawyer probably would have correctly argued that was a violation of Fourth Amendment search mm-hmm. and seizure privacy because it was on the property. But if it's in plain view, yeah, um, exactly. And, and and you can't say, oh, we tripped and fell and knocked the garbage can over, and then the lid you know, mysteriously opened up. You guys were too smart for that. But but Murph, we call these things clues. Those are called yep. clues. <laughs> um, <laughs> Hey, and Nate, before you go any further, so uh, just to back up a second, when you're seeing a dimly lit basement with multiple extension cords going in and bright light behind that door, explain to our listeners what you think you're seeing there. What's I that think it's a porn shoot. I don't know what you think it is. I think it's a porn shoot. Well, that's what troopers will be doing, but an experienced narcotics investigator. Yeah, we, we knew that the, the tip that we had, which was that he was growing marijuana in the basement, uh, all of those led to, okay, that is in fact what's going on. You could tell that that was a grow room. All that light, you know, the the way that these people will set up their grows is, uh, there, you know, there's a couple of different ways. One is, one is a hydroponic grow where they have a watering type system and the plants are in the water, but the plants need uh, a lot of sunlight. They, they have to have that. And so, um, They'll have these specific lights that they use that are very high-powered lights. Um, you know, hits consume a lot of, tons electricity. of electricity, which is yeah. always another clue when you have a, a house that that is consuming way more energy than its neighbors. Um, but yeah, so so all those types of things. And when you looked into the garbage can, we could see different venting and different uh, packaging and things like that, that also showed that there was a marijuana grow. You put it all together and it was pretty obvious that the tip was credible, that the information that she had gave us was in fact, there was a grow Very down good. there. And I- I appreciate you explaining it because not everybody knows about indoor grows and the artificial suns yeah, and so forth. Yeah, so so we knew one was there. Again, knowing one was there and with the level of what this case was compared to what we would do on a day-to-day basis still wasn't that big of a deal to us at all. I mean, it's a very, very minor thing. Um, didn't make any contact with anyone, so we left. Um, later that night, one additional guy had came into work, but most everyone else was still off on vacation. This guy's name was, uh, Derek Draper and Derek came in. It was probably about seven o'clock at night. So that time of year in Utah, you know, December 28th, it's dark by now. 
And it's he comes over the radio and he and he calls over to uh, to Jason Vanderwarf, the the guy, the agent that had the tip, and he says, "Hey, that house you were telling me about that you tried to do a knock and talk on that that there's a grow in the basement." He's like, "I just drove by it, and there's some lights on inside the home now. Do you guys want to come back and try to do a knock and talk again?" And under law, we're allowed to approach and and you know make contact with homeowners anywhere between the hours of six a.m. and ten p.m. So we were within our, our legal time to do it. So we went back over to the house. Um, Draper was waiting there for us and, and we pull up and, and again, you had the driveway leading up to the house. And then there was a, a from the driveway, a, a little uh, sidewalk that veered off to the front porch and then you the, the front porch. And then you had two big bay windows on each side of the front door. And, and the one on the right side was, was lit up and the blinds were still drawn, but the light was on in the house, which was obviously a change of what it was before, because, you know, there was no lights on when we were there earlier in the day. So Draper and Vanderwerf do the same thing. Again, they're still dressed as police. They have all their jackets and hats and things that said they're police and they go up to the front door, knock on the door and same thing. Uh, Hey, it's the police department need to talk to you. Uh, can you come to the front door? And they wait. And I, I'm waiting more at the end of the driveway. Um, there's actually a church across the street, and I was actually over there just watching the whole thing, waiting for them to make contact, and then I would have walked up. But I'm also watching the house to see if I can see any movement at all, shadows or anything like that. And I don't see anything. I don't I don't see any movement. They continue to knock and, and don't get a response. And so through the same thing, they move over to that carport door. Same thing. They knock. Hey, it's the police department. Uh, come to the door. We need to talk to you. And and no response. So we left again. And then over the course of that next week leading up to January 4th, uh, we went back an additional three times. So a total of five times we went back. And each time it was the same. We're, we're dressed, obviously police. We're identifying ourselves as police knocking on the door, just trying to handle this very, very low key. I mean, 99% of the time when we would get these types of cases, they we could handle them all the same. You knock on the door, the, the homeowner answers, hey, can we come in and talk to you? They invite us into the home. Then once we're in the home, we explain to them, hey, I'm, we're here because of this. We, we've got information. You know, if, if you can work with us, we can work with you. Uh, 99% of the time they're like, yeah, it's in the basement. They take us down there. We would have, we would have uh, taken his plants and, and, dismantled the growth to a certain extent and, and told him he can't do it. And he may have received a ticket. He may not have just depending on, on how he act. What, what, what's the line between getting a ticket and getting arrested? Uh, typically for us, if, if it was like the serious nature of it, I mean, if, if we're dealing with large quantities of drugs, then you're probably going to get arrested where this one was, was more of a smaller scale thing. It just wasn't something that rose to, high up on our radar or high up on, you know, I mean. Well, you got a lot of cases going on. It's like, if this thing doesn't have the weight or the connections to the cartel related stuff, it's like, guys, there's only so much money, time and people, you know, I think a lot of people think, well, can't you make every case? No, you can, you can't, you can make any case. You can just can't make every case and you have to pick and choose which cases you make. Every case, especially once, you know, when you figure, once you make the arrest, that, that case is now just starting. You got the whole court process you got to go through. You've got to work with the, the county attorney's office to, to successfully see this case through. And I mean, and that can take 
years on it's time yeah consuming. and so yeah. you, limited resources limited budgets limited everything you had to pick and choose which ones were the more serious and which ones were the ones that you could basically kind of slap on the wrist and say don't do this no more yeah i mean so i mean and that and that's what it was and and a, we we'd get a ton of tips we'd get a ton of tips through that tip line and and that's how a lot of them went you know uh maybe they'd get a ticket maybe they wouldn't maybe we would settle for them passing on some information i mean that's that's typically how the the dope game works is you get someone they're typically small you're like hey you don't have the time or the resources to deal with them, but you want to at least get something out of it. And aside from discouraging them from doing it again. So you also try to say, Hey, what information can you provide to us that moves us up the chain and, and gets us someone that's bigger or more serious or, or a bigger threat to the community. And so a lot of times we would just settle for that. Someone would say, well, I, I know a guy, you know, you get a, you get a guy with a small amount of dope, you know, an eight ball, which is, uh, an eighth of an ounce uh, of, of say meth and you say okay well what what well i know a guy that has a half ounce of meth okay so then you pop him and he's still not big and well what can you do well i know a guy that has two ounces of meth and that guy i know a guy that has a pound and, and you kind of go from there uh, exactly and so that's typically how we would handle these that's certainly pro- how we would have handled this if if we would have got him to answer the door but he didn't answer the door he did not, and so that moves us into the first of the year. Uh, that 2012, um, January 4th was a Wednesday, so it put the New Year's on Sunday. So everybody was still off on Monday for the for the holiday. Uh, most of the guys, um, so that would have been January 2nd, but they had it because the, the holiday fell on a Sunday. They were off anyway, so the guys got to burn their holiday day on Monday, uh, and then school was starting up on Tuesday to get the kids back in school. So a lot of guys wanted to take off that day to get their kids into school. So we didn't really have our full team back until January 4th. And I remember, so uh, I wake up on January 4th and, uh, and one of the things that we had had that kind of was made us real successful. I kind of, I hadn't talked about this, but the strike force started in 1989, uh, the Weber narcotic strike force and it's kind of funny, you know, you get all these guys down there, you get great investigators and, uh, and it's a coveted spot. And what happens is, is, you know, everybody has a type personalities, guys, guys like to work and, and it becomes very competitive. And you always, you always hear guys that are, you know, my group or when I was down there, that was the best group. There'll never be a group that was as good as that group type of a mentality. You know, we, we were the best and, it's funny the way these specialty assignments work. They don't, I don't think they plan it this way, but the way that uh, you transfer in and out of the unit, you know, typically it feels like the whole unit kind of transfers out relatively about the same time and you get a whole new crop of guys coming in. That's what happened to us. So when I went down there, most of the guys were, were fairly new. And so we kind of learned together. Well, in like 2010 and 2011, we had record-breaking years. I mean, we we broke all the records for you know drugs, guns seized, arrests, search warrants, all that type of stuff. And I remember we were that was kind of our focus. Is we were like, man, we're this kick-ass group. You know, look, we're the best, and everyone else before us is going to say they're the best group, but we have the stats to prove it. And and that was kind of our our, our focus. Um, I mean, guys were just producers. I mean, the whole unit. So on January fourth, I remember 
coming into work, you know, and one of the keys to our success, we had cultivated this informant and, uh, and he was a Mexican national, um, actually from Mexico with a naturalized citizen of Mexico. And, uh, he was a mercenary, which what that means is, uh, he wasn't working because we had charges on him. He was working for money. So essentially this is his full-time gig and, and we would call him, I'm sure Murph, you probably call them the same, you know, they were just mercenaries. They're doing it for, for money. And, uh, and this guy was good and he could get into the Sinaloa cartels up here. And I mean, he would go to the bars or, or to the, the cockfighting events, you know, the chicken fighting or the horse races, all these things that are part of the narco culture of, uh, these cartels. And, and, he was very, very good, and he played the role well, and he fed us a lot of intel, and he was kind of the secret to a lot of our success on some of these record-breaking cases. Well, when we took that whole month of December off, he wasn't working, and I remember he was really kind of pushing us, like, guys, I need to work. I need to be making money. Like, come on. I got big things, and we kept putting him off and putting him off. Hey, you know, um, we'll, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. We don't have our full team. We'll get to it. So Tuesday night, he had kind of was pushing us. Hey, I, I, I got some stuff. We we can do some things. And we kind of were pushing him off. We said, hey, let's do it tomorrow, Wednesday. Um, we'll have our full team back then. So that was kind of going into to Wednesday. So, you know, I woke up. Wednesday was a total, typical, normal day. Um, you know, I, I think everyone always assumes that you can kind of feel something coming or maybe the sun is more ominous or, or their hair on the back of your neck, you know, something telling you something bad's going to go down soon. It wasn't. This was just another search warrant, another raid and one of hundreds or thousands you guys had done. Yeah, exactly. And, and at this point, you know, we hadn't even planned the, the raid yet. I mean, we woke up, uh, we had planned on doing this stuff with that informant later. Um, and then when I got to the office, uh, Steve Sicardi was in there. Funny thing about Steve is, is when we got back from Hawaii, Steve Zaccardi was was the other sergeant, and he was from the Ogden Police Department. And uh, when we got back from Hawaii, Steve had gone in and had rotator cuff surgery on his shoulder. And, you know, uh, typically when you have some sort of an injury or, or, or surgery, you go on light duty. And typically when you're on light duty, you're supposed to go back to your home agency to work the front desk, which nobody wants to do, especially guys that are like to get after it and, and, you know, Why don't you go work the front desk and got to be back in uniform. It means you got to cut your hair and get cleaned up. And not only that, but the, the, the thing about the strike force was, is you left your, your home agency and went to the strike force. You know, you didn't want to go back. I mean, this was, if you, if you were a strike force guy, this is what you wanted to do for your career. And anytime you went back to your home agency and the administration, the sheriff or the chief would see you, it reminded them that you existed. And suddenly they'd start to be like, wait a minute, Nate, you know, how long have you been at the strike force? Uh, isn't it time for you to transfer to something new? So, and I had a standard answer. Um, I would always be like 18 months. No matter how long I had been down there, no matter how many years, I'd always say 18 months. I felt that was a good to say that, hey, I've been down here. For, if it seems like it's been a while, it's because it's been 18 months, but it hasn't been that long, so don't transfer me yeah. out. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it sounds like a Seinfeld episode, something like Costanza or Kramer would do, you know? Yeah. Exactly. Well, you, you got to do what you got to do to stay in that position as long as you can. And Zaccardi knew, he's like, you know, if I go back to the front desk, they're going to remember I exist. 
and I don't want to do that. And so we were like, well, just do, just do light duty at the, at the strike force. And he's like, yeah, that's what we'll do. We'll do light duty down here. So he was kind of on light duty. And I remember I, so I come in on that Wednesday morning. It's a Wednesday, like every other morning. And, uh, and as I get into the office, go back to the, Steve and I shared a sergeant's office. We get in there and we're talking about how the whole team's supposed to be back to work that day. And I said, you know, why don't we, uh, why don't we throw a lunch meeting? You know, you and I buy lunch for all the guys, get everybody back and kind of, kind of get everybody refocused and, and, and for the year. And so we sent out a text, told everyone to be at the office at, at a specific time. And we were buying lunch and the whole unit showed up. So let's talk about this infamous lunch meeting. Yeah. So we sent this text out. Uh, all the guys show up. Uh, first time that the unit's kind of been back to work since the Hawaii trip. And, uh, and we had a great meeting. And, and specifically in the meeting, we set our goals for 2012. And to kind of put you in the mindset of how that meeting was going, you know, I talked a minute ago about uh, – these record-breaking 2010 and 2011 years where we were just really uh, kicking ass. And as the guys, you know, Steve and I, the other sergeant, we just sat back and we're like, hey, you guys come up with what you guys want to do this year in terms of goals. These guys were putting together some crazy lofty goals. And I remember, you know, talking to him and I'm like, man, that's, you know, th those are some crazy numbers. Are you, you sure that's what we want? I mean, I'm not sure that that's achievable. And they're like, nope, nope, this unit can do it. This, we got a great group of investigators here. And so that was kind of the meeting. It was this, this really upbeat, positive meeting. You know, everybody realized that we had, you know, had some time off of work. Everybody had kind of screwed off for the month of December and, and they were back ready to work and they were back ready to get after it. So the meeting breaks up. I mean, just a really positive meeting. And, uh, Steve and I go back to the sergeant's office and Jason Vanderwerf comes in and he's like, Hey, you know, that house that we've been trying to do a knock and talk on, I'd like to do a search warrant. And I know that we're, we got stuff going later, but I'd like to get this search warrant knocked out so I can close that case. Cause I can't get anyone to answer the door. So we said, yeah, yeah, let's, let's do it. Uh, he had applied for a search warrant and it had been approved. It now, was, did you pull any of the utility data to go with that? We didn't. We were going strictly off of the tip plus everything that we had seen. Plain view. The observation. View. Yeah. 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 Okay. And, and felt we had plenty of probable cause. And obviously the judge agreed with this and issued a warrant. Uh, the warrant was a daytime knock and announce warrant, meaning it had to be served during daytime hours, which is between the hours of 6 a.m. and 10 p.m. And it's a knock and announce, meaning we have to go up and knock on the door and announce that we're police and there to serve a search warrant versus another type of warrant that a lot of times is used in the narcotic world would be a no-knock warrant where you can ram the door and just head in, and that's probably what people see a lot of times on TV. But for that, because mm -hmm. a lot of states have changed that uh, because of certain incidents that happen, but to get a no-knock, you actually have to establish now another level of proof, which is, you know, the suspect's armed, or, you know, he's a danger to the public, you know, et cetera, et cetera, before you can even get in. There's one thing about getting the warrant, then if you want no-knock, that's like another step you have to take, right? Absolutely. Yep. That's exactly uh, how it is. And so, yeah, you have to present more evidence uh, to show that there's a need that for it to be a no knock. Uh, we didn't even attempt to, we weren't, we weren't trying for that. I mean, this is uh, a, you know, it's, it's a marijuana grow. We weren't 
necessarily worried about him being able to destroy evidence. It's not like he's going to be able to go and flush the grow. So, <laughs> so, so we got it. Uh, we had been to the house many times. So, but, but that's the point I want to ask you that you guys have been to the house five times. D- either this guy didn't get the message or he's stupid because if the cops had been to my house five times, I got to figure at some point you're coming back with a warrant. Mm-hmm. Either he's too, you know, I'm, I'm thinking like, let me get rid of this stuff. Uh, but apparently he didn't. Hey, players, that is the end of part one. Part two, as always, comes out on Thursday. In the meantime, check us out at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook, at the Instagram. But where you got to be, where you got to be, where you got to be, got to be on Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We have a ton of good stuff, including... If you are at the right level, Guardian of the Realm and Warden of the Throne, we have just released Part 1, Episode 1 of The Real DEA Narcos, talking about The Real DEA Narcos, Cali Edition. Chris Feistel and Dave Mitchell go in-depth, 16 hours, about how they took down the Cali cartel. Information you will not hear anywhere else in the world, not on Netflix, not anywhere, not in a book, only right here on Game of Crimes at patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. In the meantime, also go check out our webpage, gameofcrimespodcast.com. We've got the latest merch, pictures for every episode that we put up, books that our guests write. We only put up books that they write. We put them up there. So we thank you once again for being a player in the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the Game of Crimes. Thank you.